Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. What happens when a white boy makes Korean tacos? Who and what define authenticity? Can shopping in the ethnic aisle ever become more than ethnic tourism? And can cultural appropriation even happen in food? These are the types of questions we're looking to answer on Meant to be Eaten. Because what if those Korean tacos are just really tasty tacos? And what if in our global reality, we have to borrow from one another's cultures to modernize food and continue to move it forward? I'm your host, Andrea Ween, and here with me now is Jeremy Umansky, self-proclaimed larder master and wild food forager, who has been leading the charge on koji and fermentation, even giving a TED Talk on koji, which, fun fact, happens to be the national fungus of Japan. But Jeremy's not Japanese. He's of Eastern European descent, and he got into food helping his kosher caterer grandmother out in the kitchen. But today, he's taking this ancient mold, koji, and applying it to not-so-Asian products in not-so-Asian ways. Jeremy's joining us on the phone today from Cleveland, Ohio, where he's getting ready to open his koji-powered Jewish delicatessen larder. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I also have to say before we get started, congratulations on the hat tip from Eater, who named Larder as one of the 16 most anticipated restaurant openings in the whole country for this fall. That's an amazing bit of press before you open the doors. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty intense. It, uh, when they contacted us, we were just like, are you, are you sure you've got the right people? Well, you're doing some really, really cool stuff, which we'll talk about today. So it's definitely warranted. And I'm, I, for one, am excited to come and check out the deli. Yeah, well, you and me both. <laughs> so you have a pretty long history with food and information gathering. So we mentioned, obviously, your grandmother was a caterer. But you also, as a kid, used to read the encyclopedia back and forth, I learned. So can you talk a little bit about your background and if you ever found out about Koji, perhaps, in your ex- encyclopedia exploration? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, you know, I was a, a pretty rambunctious kid, and, and uh, growing up in the 90s, I was, I was diagnosed with uh, uh, ADHD and mild Tourette's early on, and the fix for that uh, right away was like Ritalin, Ritalin, Ritalin. And uh, for anybody that's ever been on that drug, it puts you into this trance-like zombie really intense state and, and uh uh i would be on this medicine and all the craziness in my mind would kind of go away and i really like to read so i would literally and obsessively read volumes of encyclopedias from a through z and this is a time too before the internet so uh, i kind of on a yearly basis uh, my parents would go to garage sales and buy the previous year's 
volume of encyclopedias, so we always had a current one in the house. And I, it, it was something that, that I just did. I did for fun, and I did all the time. I'd often fall asleep with, with quite a few books in my bed. How, um, how much of that have you retained now? I'm curious. Like, if someone brings up some random, you know, K animal, perhaps, like, do you suddenly just know all these facts about it out of nowhere? I that does happen. You know, kind of, kind of coupled that with that. On the flip side, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in recovery with substance abuse, so I've been sober about 15 years now, and uh, so there was quite a bit of time, especially in my adolescence, where. As much as I did absorb, I did a really good job uh, erasing some of the things I absorbed. Uh, but there are plenty of things that come back constantly. Yeah. Um, and the brain is so interesting. I mean, even when I was a kid, my grandmother used to speak to me pretty much exclusively in Romanian. And I was at the age where I wasn't really speaking back. I was maybe, you know, two or three. So you have a few, you know, a little bit of dialogue, but nothing crazy. And I obviously wasn't reading or writing yet. And to this day, I can understand when my grandmother speaks Romanian to me, but when other people do it, it's, I can't really pick up on anything. So the way that our brains mold and form around these formative experiences is, is really fascinating. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Completely. And you know, I'm watching a little, I have a two-year-old daughter. I'm watching a little bit of, of that develop now. And it's just, it's really interesting. So let's set the stage a bit about this whole Koji adventure. But to start, let's talk about Koji's place in Japanese culture, what it is, traditional methods of how it's prepared and used in things that most Americans would probably recognize. Sure, sure. And I think um, it's important to even go back a bit further than that. Um, And I say a bit, but considerably further. So uh, currently, there, there's some pending archaeological evidence that puts the domesticated use of koji back about 9,000 years, uh, which is really, really far back in terms of domestication of foods. Uh, it, it literally would put it in one of the first domesticated foods on the planet. Uh, it, and it's really unique because it wasn't an animal and it wasn't a grain. It was a mold, a wild fungus. Um, so in its own right, it's really, really unique compared to all the other foods that were being domesticated in and around that time. Uh, so if we go back, we, we see it's got this ridiculously long storied history, not just in Japan, but throughout the Korean Peninsula, Southeast Asia, and China. Uh, many, many cultures and societies have used this mold over time. And it was the Japanese that about a thousand years ago really codified its use um, in terms of they developed very, very unique and in Japanese tradition, very strict technique and method for not only the cultivation of this mold, but also the products that are made with it. And there's a few cornerstone products that, that can't be made with it, the, the, or that have to be made with it. Uh, the first and foremost, and we find this throughout domestication of, of wild species, uh, is alcohol. So the major grain in that part of the world was rice and still is. And rice itself cannot be fermented into alcohol. 
And this was very, very important, especially going back quite a few centuries and thousands of years, because a lot of drinking water, fresh water, wasn't safe to, to drink. There were different pathogens in it that we didn't know how to filter out. So by brewing water into alcohol, we essentially, low-level alcohol, we, we sterilized it. We made straight drinking water. So koji, it grows in rice paddies. It grows on rice in the wild. It, someone noticed at one point in time that it was acting in a way on the rice that turned its long-chain starches, these really, really long chains that can't be fermented, breaking those down and turning them into simple sugars that would easily ferment. And as I said, alcohol was that really that first thing that, that really hit. Of course, uh, leave it to humans to turn to booze. They're like, the water's not safe. Let's try to get drunk instead and just deal with this problem a different way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And, and, you know, drunkenness and, and the drinking of alcohol have kind of always gone hand in hand. But we, we, we put that at the forefront, right? Like, we're talking about a period in time when, the, you know, the youngest children, as soon as they were weaned from their mothers, they were drinking uh, alcohols, you know, as safe drinking water. And these weren't the ones that we're used to today. These were alcohols that were 1%, 2% alcohol. It would really take a considerable amount to get drunk off of them. Um, I mean, this, this was the beverage that people had to drink if they wanted to get water. Um, you know, going from there, you know, the, the, the different products were, were developed, and we have things like soy sauces and the whole family of sauces, those accompany, uh, accompany the, these amino sauces. And we have different, um, what we now know as, as miso, different styles of miso paste, which in its own right was a ridiculously instrumental food uh, in establishing uh, not only empires and, and whole empires in China and the Koreas, but also Japan. Well, and now koji has really become this mainstay of Japanese culture as well. I mean, obviously, all of these very familiar and popular foods that we know uh, coming out of uh, Japan, but they also have, which I love, cartoon characters that are koji. And I think that's so interesting that a mold that is so pivotal to the food culture of a place has now permeated in so many other ways. Well, it's so, so, so fantastic. So, you you know, you bring up these cartoons and there's these uh, pop culture comic books in Japan, these almost graphic novels. Uh, uh, not that they're graphically not uh, violent or anything, but they're, you know, they're drawn out. And uh, there's Koji characters, and, and one of them has this little ball of Koji. It kind of looks like a pom-pom, and it goes around and on all these adventures. And um, there's Koji stuffed animals that little kids play with. And uh, in Japan, I, I believe it was 2006, um, it was actually declared the national mold. So the symbolism attached to koji, and it's important in Japanese importance in Japanese society. We could essentially liken to like the bald eagle um, in the United States. It's really a symbol of national pride and culture and integrity. It's really that ingrained within their society. And if you look at, too, the, uh, the foods from Japan and foods from other Southeastern Asian cultures that have become popular in other parts of the world, it is the things such as soy sauce and sake and miso 
that are some of the most well-known from Japanese cuisine into our culture. So it just that even further goes to show the power of koji um, in in you know their their society, their culture, and not only that, but generally um, amongst the taste buds and the gastronomy of of the people the world the worldwide. Yeah, we've talked about this before, but I think our national icon or cartoon would be like the Oscar Mayer wiener, which isn't nearly as highbrow and interesting. And I think our mold would probably be something terrible like E. coli. So they're definitely onto something there in Japan with, with these delicious molds that are making real things that people can eat. Yeah, that's for sure. I, I can't even imagine what like an E. coli mascot or cartoon <laughs> would be like. That'd be horrific. It would be a definite horror novel. That's for sure. That's for like sure. Watching it, watching it be birthed from like a pile of poop or something like that. It's just like there's so there's no romance. No, that. no, there's nothing good there. But let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we're going to be talking about how Jeremy has taken this ancient mold and really made it his own here in Cleveland. I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself why his products taste so good. So what's the secret, Bob? To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is using stone mills? How old are we talking here? Well, the stone mills are practically as old as mankind, and no matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte, and it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire, of which you can testify by looking at at Pompeii. It's a quartz material. It has a uniqueness about it. It's very hard. It has a certain porosity, and they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and, and sharpest parts. It's an ingenious thing but very old. I mean, thousands of years old. So it's uh, pretty cool. Those sound like some really special stones. How do they work? Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone, turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, produce a lovely three, four, up to 500 pounds, depends on the, how, how soft the grain is. The bottom stone is the bedstone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible. But it also now turns for some configurations. Would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains? I know they do. I can watch it. I showed you. (laughs) You know it as well as I do. Uh, The grain goes in the top, goes through the stones, and it comes out. We don't lose anything, and we don't add anything. Thanks for sharing the story of how Bob's Red Mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the cutting edge. 
Michael, we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling whole grain, and that's what we're doing. You can learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. If you're just tuning in with us, you are listening to Meant to be Eaten, and I am your host, Andrea Ween. We are talking all things Koji with Jeremy Umansky. So Jeremy, obviously when we are eating things like soy sauce or sake or miso a little bit less to an extent, I guess you could kind of picture it, we're not really seeing the koji. And that's partially what you've been doing, uh, why it's so interesting, right? Because you've taken koji and really made it visible in a very unique way. Can you talk a little bit about your personal introduction to koji? Sure, sure. Um, uh, at the time, I was working with uh, a good friend of mine, Chef Jonathan Sawyer, here in Cleveland. Uh, if if anybody's visiting and gets a chance to go to one of his restaurants, here's the plug. Go to the Greenhouse Tavern, go to Trentina, hit up Noodle Cat. Uh, they're all fantastic. And so we, we were working together. I was a larder master uh, based out of Trentina. What is? And, well, let me stop you right there. What is a larder master? I know that you, you call uh, yourself that, but I really would love to hear a little bit more about what that is. Yeah, yeah. So simply put... Uh, a larder is akin to a root cellar, but it's above ground. And it's uh, just like a root cellar. It's where somebody would hang a ham or have a barrel of sauerkraut or store root vegetables and various preserves, you know, over periods of time. Uh, so I've managed, I've managed larders, uh, and uh, I create foods in a larder. That's, uh, that's where I do a lot of my work. That's my laboratory. Um, so, you know, this was kind of a term that sprung up when uh, Chef Sora and I were, were kind of discussing, well, you're not the chef of the restaurant, you know, what, 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 what are you doing? Like, what do we tell people when they ask? And, and this kind of term came up, and uh, it's, it's something that, that brought into our own. And it's really fascinating, too, because you're seeing larder masters pop up in restaurants across the country and across the world. Um, you know, it's 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 super awesome. Yeah. So, it sounds like a dream job, really. So you were, you're working, doing, uh, work in the larder and Koji comes up. How? Yeah. So, um, you know, at this point in my, my career, uh, uh fermentation and the preservation of food is, uh, at the forefront of my skill set, And it's, it's what I specialize in. And, and, um, uh, Chef Sawyer had come to me and said, Hey, I want to make something like miso, but because Trentina is an Italian restaurant, I want to make sure it holds on to an Italian identity. Uh, can we do it with garbanzo beans? And I said, sure, um, never having made miso before. So I started doing a little bit of research, and this thing, Koji, starts coming up. And uh, really, there's really only one style of um, a miso-like product that comes from the Koreas that's made without Koji. All the other styles that come from China, and there's dozens of them, and from Japan, there's countless styles of miso. They all use ko koji in them. So this comes up, and I'm like, all right, I've got to get koji. And, and I come to find out that it's a mold. It's a fungus, um, something that kind of the other part of my skill set, uh, I, I work with wild foods as a forager. Um, I was like, all right, I can totally totally work with this mushroom. I, I understand this fungus. I understand their life cycle, how they work, what they need. This is going to be a non-issue. So 
simply put, I, I ordered some Koji spores, and these are uh, the fungal equivalent of a seed. I uh, ordered them from a great company called Gem Cultures. They, they specialize in uh, sourcing pure strains of, of, of Koji from Japan. And I got them, and I started growing it and experimenting with it. And as I'm working with it, I noticed a few things. A, at least within English, there's no easily accessible information about what koji is and what its uses are. Uh, everything seems to be in Japan or other Asian languages. And so it was very difficult for me to actually find out what its full potential could be. Um, you know, I did as much research as I could. I reached out to professors at the University of Tokyo, and I said, hey, you know, like, really, like, you guys only have these few foods that you use this for? Like, this, this could be doing so much more. And, you know, started doing more work and research into it and found out that, it's used widely in, in the pharmaceutical and cosmetics industry and, and all these other things, but its use in food had seemed to be fairly stale. Um, so, And when you, you say know, that, at, that means like people were using it to create these other foodstuffs, but they weren't necessarily covering foods in it or seeing what, what it could do to push the boundaries of? Yeah, essentially. Um, you know, w w one of the things that, kind of came up out of this was, um, you know, this thought, like, if koji can grow on rice or barley or beans, you know, those, those ingredients uh, have a lot of base nutrient to them. So they're full of starches, they're full of proteins, they're full of fats. And if koji will grow on these things, if I can find other foods that have similar or grade up makeups of those those core ingredients, what I mean, what won't koji grow on? Essentially, uh, was was the thought. So, started growing it on everything from acorns to mushrooms to uh, you name it. And eventually, I got to the point uh, I was making pasta one day, rice pasta out of the extrusion machine. And I'd been working with tons of different rice flours and formulations. And I said, you know, if koji will grow on rice, why wouldn't it grow on rice flour? Most rice flour is cooked rice that is then dried and milled down. Uh, so I literally got the idea to grow it on some rice flour, and it worked beautifully. So I happened to be just messing around, and, and for some reason the thought popped in my head, why don't I coat something in rice flour and spores and grow it on there? And that's something at that time I, I wanted to set a limit test. It ended up being a scallop. So I took scallops. I gently seasoned them with salt and sugar um, to kind of bring out some of their moisture so the, the flour would adhere and also the sugar is in there to provide instant food for the mold before it can break its own down from the, the rice starch. Um, I, I coated them in this flour mixture and held them at 90 degrees and about 90% humidity for, for 48 hours. <laughs> and anyone who's left stuff in their car, takeout food, knows that scallops sitting in 90-degree heat for 48 hours should typically spell disaster. But that's not what happened. Yeah, they, they should be like a putrefied, <laughs> liquefied, disgusting, gag-inducing mess. Um, 
but but they weren't. Uh, the mold grew beautifully on them, and uh, being you know the people Chef Sawyer and I are, like they hit the frying pan right away without a thought as to whether this you know is going to be uh, something that could could you know cause us bodily harm or anything. <laughs> and they ended up being good, and we were fine. And further testing went on, and and I developed two really interesting techniques out of that. Uh, for for working with proteins, uh, and we do it with vegetables and all, all sorts of things too, um, using koji. That as far as we found out, and and know to this day, even even with all the attention it's gotten, has hasn't been done before. Um, it, which you know, I, I get asked a lot that people say, "All right, so how does a Jewish boy from Cleveland, Ohio?" Uh, make an innovation with something that has 9,000 years of history and has had the hands of countless, you know, millions and millions of people touch it over that, that period of time. And, you know, I don't necessarily have an answer, but in my mind it was very logical to use koji in a way that we use other molds. Uh, we, we make wheels of cheese and we incubate them with molds and let it sit out. And we make charcuterie and we encourage the growth of mold on there. And, and when it comes down to it, koji is, is another mold. It just happens to be extremely virulent, works really, really fast compared to any other mold out there, and is fantastically delicious and produces amazing results. Yeah, I mean, you're taking the curing time of charcuterie, let's say, down exponentially. What's, what's something that you've cured the traditional curing process for and then used koji, and how has that differed? Uh, yeah, so for example, uh, right now I have a prosciutto going. Um, this is from a smaller hog, and it's a it's a front leg ham as opposed to a back leg. So uh, this started off as like an eight pound ham. Uh, something like that would take nine months, better part of a year, and we're hoping to slice into it after about sixty days. That's unbelievable, uh, and and matches up quite well with the larder opening, which is perfect. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so so it it it's really fascinating, kind of some of the things we found out that Koji actually does, and and what it does on a piece of meat. Um, there's a few really interesting things. So, a we found out that much like other beneficial molds in food production. Uh, or bacteria that we use, like when we ferment, we use different types of bacteria. These bacteria, we, we create an environment for them in these molds. We create these environments for them that allow them to establish themselves and fight off and crowd out pathogenic and toxin-producing bacteria and molds. So koji does this much like lactobacillus does this in a sauerkraut ferment. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing it does is it releases powerful, powerful enzymes. And these are amylases that break down starches, proteases that break down proteins, and lipases that break down lipids or fats. And as it does this, it, it, in a natural setting, it does this to break down whatever it's growing on, and then it absorbs everything it breaks down. To, to eat, to metabolize. Now, when it does this on a piece of meat, it breaks down the fats and the proteins and the starches in that piece of meat. And during that process, it does a number of really intriguing things. So it 
creates tastes and flavors that were always there, but because they were bound up in different molecular structures, we were never able to taste them. And now we can actually taste them, and we get these really, really incredible umami flavor profiles, and we get all this nuance out of our food that literally we couldn't even interpret before. Our neurological network couldn't process it. And now it's there at, at the forefront, and we can process it right away. What is it um, about the koji that allows it? It's the molecular structure, then, of how it's hitting our taste buds once it's broken down? Well, well, yeah. So it's breaking, it's breaking starches down into a, a wide variety of simple sugars, and we can taste those very intensively. And it's breaking these uh, proteins down to a whole cluster of amino acids, which then kind of move around and interact with other amino acids and compounds in food. And those give us a whole different set of tastes. And then when it breaks down fats, it breaks them down to esters and and, uh, fatty acids. And these are things that are like highly aromatic and really volatile and and are very aroma-inducing. So we end up with like I said, these things were there, but because they were in one structure, one molecular structure, we couldn't taste them. Essentially, we'd have to be tasting them kind of in our stomach, our intestines, when they started to break down in our system. Um, but now we're doing that before it even hits our tongue. So right away when we hit our tongue, we're tasting all of these, all of these hidden gems, essentially. It's so exciting um, to think that even after all these years, 2017, so many things have been discovered and, you know, we think that we hit kind of the end of the line in terms of innovation and then things like Koji and, and your application of them pop up and it makes it so much more interesting again, right, to be to be um, experimenting with these foodstuffs. Oh, like passion, it's, it's, it's this borderline between passionate and obsession, right? Like <laughs> Absolutely. Passion, passion is like the good side of that coin and obsession is the potentially destructive side of that coin and it koji puts everything like right in between the two and and uh it creates this drive in you when you work with it to see like what else you can do and and the amazing results that you can get with so many different things that you know we're used to eating foods that fit uh, a certain um ingrained identity in our heads both on uh, what we're taught, what we see culturally, and our previous experience. And then when we taste the food that Koji's been applied to, and it, it is that food, it's familial, but it's so much more than we ever thought it could be. It really, really just drives that, that passion and that obsession. Um, and it's, it's fantastic how it does it. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing with that passion and obsession. So Larder is opening in December, early December, and you're going to be using koji to culture really traditionally Jewish foods like pastrami, rye bread, smoked lox. How are you thinking about the blending of these two very different and very traditional respective food, foods and cultures? Have there been any surprises or challenges? Or, you know, what, what are you and your team kind of going through on a daily basis of how to pay homage and respect to both sides? Sure. I, I think there's there's always risks and challenges and there's success and failure. Like that that happens anyway. But you know, as I, I mentioned previously, like uh in cheese making and charcuterie production, uh we've we've used molds to make food for millennia. So the fact that we've taken one that maybe isn't traditionally inherent to the cuisines of Eastern Europe and Russia, 
um, I, I, I think is inconsequential, essentially. We're still using a mold. So that in itself, when we make these styles of Eastern European charcuterie, uh, it, it, it's really, on its base level, no different as long as we say it's a mold. Right? It doesn't necessarily matter where in the world it comes from. It's still uh, true to the identity of those products based on that. You know, where it becomes a little, uh, a little different is, like you said, we make a smoked rye bread. Uh, so in that bread, we replace some of the water in that recipe with this liquid, um, liquid version of koji we make. It's a style of amazaki which is a sweet koji porridge that we make very liquidy, and then we let it ferment a little further so that it becomes really sour and lactic. And we use that in place of maintaining a sourdough starter or that bread. And we take it, we, we add it to the bread. It does its magic in terms of what it does in terms of flavor and taste creation, it's anecdotally also doing some really, really interesting things to gluten that we're having analyzed right now. We, we think it's actually changing the whole structure of gluten on a molecular basis, uh, actually making it a little bit bigger. Hmm. It, it, so are the implications it, it, for that then? So I have celiac, actually. So would the implications be that that protein is getting broken down into something else or getting well, not, more not intense? Broken, okay, Not broken down, but expanded into a way. And this is anecdotal at this point where uh, me and a couple colleagues, uh, uh, one of them is, is Rick Porter. He's down in Florida. Uh, he's spearheading an effort uh, with the University of North Carolina to uh, look at this under the microscope. And, and what we think is happening is it's actually lengthening the gluten molecule in a way that it no longer fits into the gluten receptor sites in our bodies because it's been changed, but it still maintains the structural integrity as gluten would. Um, so there's re- really ridiculous and broad-reaching implications for this. And we base that on, we started receiving unsolicited advice from some of our diners saying, hey, two of them had celiac disease, and we've gotten countless from people with gluten intolerance saying uh, they decided to eat our bread for some reason, and they weren't adversely affected. And, you know... That's so exciting. So exciting. And wheat flour should definitely trigger some sort of of, of response, some inflammatory response, and it, it wasn't. And a couple of these people have done it repeatedly and not, not experienced something. So, uh, you know, Koji's magic is still, like, evolving. We're still, still trying to figure out some of the things that it's doing. Um, but kind of, you know, back to the bread itself, you know, we, we, so we create this sour uh, Koji-based liquid that we use instead of a sourdough starter. We take the bread, we make it, and then we proof it in a smoker. So we add tons of, like, rich, earthy uh, tones to it. Uh, and then it gets baked off, and you eat it, and you're like, wow, I totally feel like I'm sitting by a campfire somewhere in Poland or Ukraine when I'm eating this this bread. Um, you know, you don't say to yourself, wow, I feel like I'm somewhere in Japan uh, enjoying this bread. Like, it is an Eastern European-style rye. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Have you had, I mean, you mentioned that it's very strict, rigid guidelines for how koji has traditionally been used in Japan. Have you received any criticisms for taking it a different direction? 
Um, no, surprisingly, no. And I, I thought I would um, because these these guidelines for making koji, they, they are really important, especially if you're a sake maker. If you're someone who's looking for the ultimate impurity and crisp refinement, if you don't follow these guidelines, you're going to end up with sakis that don't taste as refined, aren't as pure, aren't as intentional as, as they are meant to be. So, you know, with a sake maker, it's very important. But these other applications... Uh, you know, when, when I started making it, uh, you know, part of the process is using a very specific style of rice that is milled a specific way, and then it has to be soaked and steamed uh, with great attention and care, and then all the individual grains of rice have to be broken up before inoculation, and then you inoculate the rice, and then you toss it a specific way, and then you wrap it in these special Japanese cotton cloths and put in these special... Uh, cedar trays and put in a special incubation chamber called a Miro. And then you have to toss it and move it around every few hours and aerate it. And it's a really complex process. And it, you know, takes place over about 48 hours. And you literally have to have someone there every few hours to attend to this. And when I first started growing Koji, like I didn't have that setup. I didn't have that kind of time. Uh, my first experiments with growing it, we were making a, a style of brodo, a, a vegetable broth at Trentina, that we were fortifying with rice so that it had a little bit more body. And I was literally straining that rice out of that stock, picking out the bits of mirepoix, inoculating it, and growing koji on it. And, you know, I'm saying to myself, man, like, Whoever wrote these instructions, if they saw me doing this, they're probably, <laughs> like, gasping because this, this, you know, they say this isn't how it should be done, but it, it works, and it works for, you know, life is life and, and things want to live and, and will grow, and so Koji does that, right? It, as long as its base needs are met, it will grow. It doesn't care about the ceremony or, or the attention we give to it. Um, well, and I have so, to imagine people who have been growing koji and using it in these traditional applications have to be excited that something new has come along, I would think, maybe, some of them, um, and that they can experiment, too, in new ways, hopefully. Well, yeah, and it, it, I, I had this fear. You know, I'm, I'm a traditionalist in, in kind of these weird respects in terms of what I do with fermentation and food preservation. And even though I always look to, to kind of push the envelope and surprise myself and hopefully our diners and our guests, um, but I was really worried that, you know, some people in Japan would be really, really angry with me. And it's turned out to be the exact opposite. Um, I got interviewed a number of months ago by, from what I'm told, is one of the leading food publications in Japan. Uh, they kind of did a little expose, and, and I haven't, I've seen the article, but I haven't been able to read it because it's in Jap Japanese. Um, but I'm told it was, you know, a nice article and, and looking very promising to the future of Koji and, and what can happen now that uh, it's being accepted. They're they just excited that it's being accepted in other parts of the world. Uh, they don't necessarily care that, you know, someone is doing it in a different way. They're really excited about that. They're, they're thrilled that their national identity is being accepted in parts of the world that before nobody even understood what it even was. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, is this is this something too? I mean, I'm sure people listening are thinking, wow, this all sounds great. I don't live in Cleveland. How can I get my hands on some of this? So is there anything that someone who, who's interested a home chef can do to start working with this or experimenting? Yeah, well, first and foremost, there are now a number of chefs across the world who are working with Koji intensively. Uh, um, uh, David Chang in New York, Sean Brock down in, in Charleston and Nashville, uh, Kevin Fink in Austin, Courtney Burns in San Francisco, um, and myself, I as larger has been opening, I've worked as a, a consultant with chefs everywhere from uh, Killington Mountain in Vermont to Philadelphia to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina with my buddy Clark Barlow. Like There are chefs that are using Koji all over the United States now. So chances are if you're in a, a fairly... Uh, concentrated metropolitan area, there's a chef at a restaurant who's using Koji right now, then you can go and eat their food. Uh, the other thing is it's really accessible. As, as Still as hard as it is to find information about it, especially in English or, or Spanish or Italian or German or whatever language outside of Japanese or, or different Chinese dialects, uh, you can easily find uh, rice that, or barley that has already had Koji grown on it on Amazon. Or you can find one of the products or a few of the products that are made with Koji that still have these active enzymes in it from Amazon. And those products are Amazaki and Shio Koji, a salted Koji. So you can easily get those. Uh, you can order the Shio Koji. You can take some, rub it on a steak or a chicken breast, and leave it in your fridge for two days, and then cook it up and enjoy the benefits of Koji. And you don't even have to, like, worry about, like, what... You know what is going on with this mold? Why is it working? How does it do what it do what it does? You can literally buy everything you need. It would just be like if you bought a, a bottle of marinade from from the grocery store and put on a steak. You don't necessarily think about the balance of acids and all the different things and flavors in that marinade that are creating flavors and tenderizing and and all this different different stuff. So it's super easy to be able to jump in. And as I said, you can also buy you know that rice or barley with it grown on and make your own Amazaki or make your own Shio Koji or develop, you know, make your, you can essentially make your own sake from that or your own soy sauce or make your own miso paste, you know, with that ingredient. So there, there are a number of, of ways that you can easily get in. If you're someone that wants to totally nerd out, you definitely check out Gem Cultures and their website. Uh, you can buy all the base things for Koji from them. So you can buy the actual spores. And they have a, quite a variety of different variants of this mold, all that are specifically bred to grow on different things. They will all grow on anything, uh, but some are better suited for barley, and some are better suited for beans, and some are better suited for rice. Uh, so you could you could totally nerd out, get that right from them, and you know go ahead and start growing your own koji. Well, I'm and excited to come nerd out with you because you're running a koji workshop that I'm taking in the fall, and I couldn't be more excited. So. That's going to be amazing. I'll, we'll be putting it on social media and on the show um, Instagram, hopefully, so people can peek in and, and see what you're up to. Most definitely. Most definitely. Jeremy, this has been such a real treat. Thank you so much for coming on the show, and best of luck with the opening of Larder. For those who are interested, can you let people know how they might be able to stay in touch with you? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm easily reachable, especially through social media. And that would be at TM Gastronaut. And uh, the Larder accounts are at, at Larder 
DB, as in delicatessen and bakery. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. I'm your host, Andrea Ween. This has been the first episode of Meant to be Eaten. And remember, next time, if it looks moldy but smells sweet, don't get freaked out. It's Meant to be Eaten. For listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.